Have you ever bought shares in a company on the stock market? A standard way of investing, blockchain digital securities may revolutionize this age-old model. And today, we welcome Bruce Fenton of the Satoshi Roundtable Conference to the show. Our own crypto chick, Rachel Wolfson, caught up with Bruce recently, and we think you'll be fascinated by his take on the future of tokenizing securities. Right now, someone is brushing their teeth. And right now, someone is scratching an itch on their nose. Right now, someone is singing along to the song Right Now by Van Halen. And right now, someone, you, is listening to episode number 230 of the Bad Crypto Podcast. tomorrow <laughs> right now yeah. why put it off another day it's a bad crypto podcast right One now more walk through your problems talking stand about up, the blockchain stand up in our way <laughs> one step ahead one step behind <laughs> <laughs> that's copyright infringement there mr travis right no actually it was not because it was artistically very bad it's just bad karaoke. That's that was horrible. That was good. I think, well, I, got the, I think I got the lyrics right. I'm not sure. Something like that. Everybody, right now, welcome to the Bad Crypto Podcast, the show for the crypto curious, those who are curious right now, and those who are crypto serious right now, because we are living in the moment. We are carping the heck out of those DMs, because all we have is right now, and we're glad that you're with us. That's one of my favorite quotes, is now is the moment of power. The, the past is a figment of your imagination at this point because it's just a memory. The future is also just a figment of your imagination. The only thing and the only moment in power is right now. That's the only time you can do something. So move. Well, yesterday is just a game we used to play. Yesterday? In a song by the Beatles. That is true. Yesterday, I was at a game called the AFC Championship where my Chiefs lost to the Patriots again. Well, right now, we have our show sponsor, Digitex, and of course, uh, the website, badcode.in forward slash futures, over 850,000 people signed up for the early wait list for the launching of this commission. How many was that? Trading 850,000. Wow. 850,000 yep. people signed up for that. Crypto's dead, man. Bitcoin, crypto, it's bad. <laughs> it's over. It's a commission-free trading platform. Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin futures contracts, they get rid of all transaction fees they get rid of all withdrawal deposit fees and you can trade with absolutely no fees they've got a cool ui they've got their own crypto token the dgtx token currently sitting at about three and a half cents as of now and the more demand for the token hopefully those who invest it will see that um, it'll go up in value and lead to a highly liquid trading market the website again to sign up to check it out badco.in forward slash futures because not only is digitex right now but it could be the futures it could be and it's it's not the past so and it's now but we're all about time right here on this one well also in the not too distant past crypto chick rachel wilson Got to meet with Bruce Fenton about the future of digital securities and how uh, investing in um, uh, stocks via security tokens could be the new way that we buy shares of companies. And you're here in the present to listen about the future. So there, we've covered all of time. That is good. No, that is that is serious. And that brings me to a, a very good Bruce Lee quote. Because we're making draw. Bruce Lee's going to be on the show today? No, Bruce Fenton. Oh, yeah, Bruce Fenton. <laughs> be like water, making its way through cracks. Do not be assertive, but adjust to the object. Uh, you shall find a way around or through it. If nothing within you stays rigid, outward things will disclose themselves. Empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. If you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. If you put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. If you put it in a teapot, it becomes a teapot. Now. Water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. <laughs> and be listening to this interview with Bruce Fenton. 
My guest today is Bruce Fenton, founder and managing director of Atlantic Financial, board member of the Bitcoin Foundation, co-founder of the Bitcoin Association, and CEO of Chainstone Labs. Welcome, Bruce. Thanks for having me. So, Bruce, you're a longtime crypto investor. Tell me how you got into Bitcoin in the first place. Well, it was probably about 2012 that I first started researching Bitcoin. I had been interested in emerging markets and emerging technologies for my career as a financial advisor, you know, going back into you know, when I first started in the 90s, I was always interested in, you know, kind of what are the next, uh, you know, new technologies that might come along and how you can invest in them. So, and I was also interested in technology overall and sort of free market economics, Austrian school economics. So all of those kind of came together in in Bitcoin and that made me very interested in it, you know, pretty early on. So it was more like 2013, I think, when I started buying a little bit of it and getting involved and going to some meetings. And I didn't get too aggressive actually in the in the space really um uh, I, I spent a lot of time learning and, uh, you know, for months and months early in the, in, you know, in the space, I just went to a lot of events and learned everything I could and in those days, reading everything I could and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And Bruce, I remember, or at least I was reading, or you told me during our last interview for Forbes that you have kind of an interesting background. I think you've kind of, um, you grew up with, uh, was it your mom who was in doing stocks or what was that again? Yeah, yeah, it is kind of funny now. I mean, it's especially interesting in light of the way that the world is looking today and where my career has gone, because I, I really was kind of raised on Wall Street. My mom was a stockbroker starting in 1977 when I was uh, five years old, and I kind of grew up on the you know, literally on the floor working in her office at, at, uh, first she was at Merrill Lynch and then Payne Weber and eventually Dean Witter. And I, I ended up getting a job at Dean Witter when I was 14, but you know, even when I was seven and eight years old, I was kind of sitting on the floor, you know, just playing around like kids do in their parents' offices and learning. And, and, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time there. That's where I went after school. So I got interested in it over time. And then in my teens, I got my first job there when I was, I think, 14 or something. I worked as like a messenger. And then at, at 19, I got my Series 7 and became a broker. And I've been registered in some form or another ever since then. So that's 27 years. So I've kind of kind of been in the business as, you know, as a registered professional. And if you count my, my childhood, even even more than that. So, uh, you know, stocks and and equities and and the markets are kind of in my blood. It's something that I'm really, really interested in. I think it's a cornerstone of the way that the world works, the way the economy works, all of these great innovations that we have from companies like Apple and Microsoft and all of these great things all come from this, this way that, that stocks can trade now and the way that we have modern markets, which goes back to hundreds of years to the, 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 you know, in, in um, you know, the Dutch East India Company, when they first became publicly traded, that changed the way the world works. And, the, you know, equities continue to change the way the world works. The whole way everything is, is the way it is, at least today, because in part of the way that these things trade, what would Apple and Google and Microsoft and all of these things be if we didn't have them traded, if they weren't able to raise the money that they were and all of these kind of things. So it's very, very fascinating to me. And so I'm especially excited that now kind of there's a convergence of the area that I spent my whole life in and this new wave of securities tokens, digital securities, this kind of thing, which is marrying it with this technology that I've been obsessed with for the last five or six years. So it's very interesting with the latest news from Medici Ventures and the successful digital securities token transfer representing equity ownership in Chainstone Labs. Um, so when I was interviewing you for my Forbes article, you pointed out that transferring digital securities is one of the few use cases where blockchain technology actually makes sense. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, this is something that is a great question. It's misunderstood by a lot of people, a lot of uh, really smart people who understand the uh, blockchain technology and what a blockchain is and how it works. They ask a very good question, which is, uh, why do you need a, blo a blockchain at all? Why not just use a database? If you're already trusting an issuer, why would you need this extra thing called a blockchain? Because there are drawbacks of blockchain. They're slower than databases. They're more expensive, and there's a lot more to maintain them and keep them secure and other things. So there are definitely drawbacks. And that's a great question, but it comes down to uh, the question of who you're trusting. 
When you have a securities issuer, a company that's issuing a stock, whether that's Apple or Chainstone or someone else, the people buying that stock, they trust that company to the degree that they've priced that in. Maybe they think it's a good company. Maybe they think it's bad. They've priced that into the market, and that's sort of fair. The That's not what you're solving for. A blockchain isn't going to make you not need to trust your securities issuer. What a blockchain will do is make it so that you don't need to trust somebody to run the ledger. The ledger telling you who you who owns what, and the ledger is different from the issuer. You know, Apple doesn't keep a ledger right now that says who owns what shares, and uh, small businesses tend to a, a little company uh, or a startup like a Chainstone uh, typically would keep a ledger, but. It doesn't need to be that way. You can have the ledger be run by a third party, like it is in the case of big publicly traded companies, or you can have it run uh, by peers in the case of what we did with Chainstone and what I think will be the future as you have more companies digitizing their shares. And what, what that means is that you can take a share and you, just like a paper share, you're having a, a statement where a company says, yes, we recognize this and we say it's a share. And then it has whatever value it is. It could be a billion dollars. If it's some super share from a Microsoft, it could be worth a penny if it's a tiny share from a tiny company. But whatever it's worth, it's worth. And whether it's paper or digital shouldn't really affect that much. But what it can do is make it so you can move that all around the world in a way that you couldn't move anything before. You can't move paper and you can't move old old style digital securities, and you can't move a database entry the way that you can move a blockchain-based digital asset. Because with those assets, just like Bitcoin, it's the peers who is running the ledger. And the peers are saying what's true, not some centralized database. And that's a really big deal. It's why Bitcoin is such a huge big deal for money. And it's why I think that it's, you know, this technology is such a big deal for digital securities. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I want to kind of point something out that I um, saw during a presentation you gave at the Texas Bitcoin conference. You mentioned that securities are not cryptocurrencies. So can you kind of explain that? Sure. And it's a, it's an interesting thing. A lot of people are jaded by the ICO markets and a lot of the other things around this whole sort of cryptocurrency slash blockchain Bitcoin space. And a lot of people who, especially those who tend to really, really like Bitcoin and feel that that's superior money, and that's a really good argument, kind of tend to hate everything else that's any kind of token or digital asset. And that's usually based on a lot of good reasons. It's sort of like, you know, if if nine dogs in a row bite you in a row, you might think that all dogs are bad. Uh, But I think it's more a function of how the structure is. I think that digital assets are great. I do agree that probably 95% or more maybe of the last kind of major batch in 2017 were very, very low quality assets. And a lot of them didn't have good terms. But the idea that you can trade these things around and not need a database to say who owns what, that's the killer app. So all you need to do is change the terms. And the terms can be good just as easy as they can be bad. It would just take one board resolution from one good company anywhere in the world and bang, it's a good asset. I mean, if if a Microsoft or an Apple, and it doesn't even need to be a company that big, certainly a company with... 50 million in assets, it's still 50 million. All we need is one company to go out and say, here's something that we are representing, and here it is in digital form. And bang, that has value. That has value whether the ICO market comes or goes, whether Bitcoin is considered or adopted as the global reserve currency or global cash or not. Those assets have have value based on what they are, whether that's a real estate or a sandwich shop or a pizza house or a tech company. Uh, And those values are going to rise and fall just like any other uh, assets, and they may be volatile. But the point is that the underlying security uh, has some value. So that, that I think, is something that's really exciting about it. And, and a lot of people sort of lump everything together and they think, well, you know, these are competitors to Bitcoin or something like that. And it, it, it's really not. Bitcoin, uh, no matter how aggressive you are in your belief that Bitcoin will be the global reserve currency, I think if you're saying you'd still believe that securities are going to be a thing. Certainly businesses are going to still exist. There's going to be companies inventing computers and television visions and phones and cars and stuff. And those companies are going to be traded somehow. I think that there's a really compelling case that that somehow is going to be digital securities. And 
that's going to be a big deal because it'll enable us to do all kinds of cool things that we can't do right now. We don't tend to own, in my entire career in 27 years, I've done very, very few transactions outside the United States, billions and billions in transactions, over five and a half billion in transactions I've done in the US, but very rarely, especially for small customers, very rarely can I take a smaller customer and put their money in, in even, even a country as major as China. Uh, you, you, you know, your average customer and your average account uh, in America can't even do something as simple as buy stocks in, in China. Uh, and that's pretty antiquated. I think it's going to change. I think you'll have a long tail kind of like, you know, YouTube has done for video where you have thousands to choose from. I think you'll have you know, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of equities to choose from. Instead of just a few hundred, you'll be able to invest all around the world in smaller, different companies, different different kind of thing than you can do now. So I think it could be a real big deal. Right. And I mean, this was demonstrated um, just recently with Medici Ventures, like I mentioned before, ownership in Chainstone Labs. Can you talk a little bit about the process and how that actually happened? Um, kind of go into detail about that? Sure. So one of the overreaching beliefs that we have as a company and that I have and I share with Medici and Medici's leadership, Jonathan Johnson and Patrick Byrne, the CEO of Overstock. And I'm on the I'm on the board of Medici also. So we all work together and we all sort of share this vision that the world is going to become tokenized. We understand the power of these decentralized ledgers versus the old system where you had trusted centralized entities like DTCC and Euroclear, who the world relies on to say who owns what stock. We understand this technology enough to know that there's a better way. So clearly for our own company, it was just a natural fit. We said, well, we believe in this. We think that this is the way that stock should move. We think this is the way that stock should be. And well, we might as well do it for ourselves and our own company. And it's kind of a, uh, uh, you know, it does a few things. It sort of shows it in real life. We're kind of e eating our own cooking, so to speak. And, and, and it's sort of a demonstration as well. I thought it was quite exciting that we could transfer these shares in 10 seconds. And if you watch that video, those are real shares transferring. This isn't some kind of gimmick. This is, this is us doing, you know, using the technology in real life. Now for crypto people, that may not seem like a big deal. They're using Used to moving things sometimes worth millions of dollars all over the world in seconds. But that's not the way the world has worked. Uh, before we did it, almost nobody in the history of the world has ever transferred an equity that quickly. How could they? It's impossible. Uh, even, even Wall Street, with all its billions in, ten, in technology, can't even come close to transferring an equity that, that fast. It takes them days, not hours, not minutes, days, often over a week, over a week. Because it's all got to go through this huge, complex uh, amalgamation of, of uh, you know, databases that don't trust each other and parties who don't trust each other and brokers and transfer agents and issuers and uh, regulators and all of these other kinds of things. And uh, so this is really, really powerful. So it did serve as a, as a demonstration. It's also, you know, sort of a... Um, uh, you know, kind of a proof of, proof of concept. You know, we think that this, this will work and, and be built on. And, uh, you know, those shares that we transferred in that cool, quick video, you know, will be real shares, whatever happens with the company in the future. If those end up transferring or changing or something, it would be, you know, that, that same kind of thing. And I, I think that, that showing the ease that that can be done, where a company can set up, at least from a technical side, the technical side only takes minutes. You're still going to need a lawyer uh, to do the legal side, but the technical side is is something that you could do in maybe 10 minutes. You could set up your equity uh, tell how many shares there are, and you can transfer them just as easily as you could transfer some Bitcoin or some Ethereum. And so that's that's going to be pretty cool. And it will open up a lot of doors for the way that capital is raised. I think that's what a lot of companies, um, you know, like like Circle with their acquisition of Seed Invest are probably looking at. There's a lot of cool aspects of crowdfunding. There's different things that companies like Tzu, I'm sure Coinbase and others are looking at in how this ease of moving money around and moving shares around in a way that couldn't be done before will unlock capital in a way that we've never seen before. Yeah. I mean, it's really revolutionary. And Bruce, you mentioned there's a video for those interested in seeing that video. Where can they view it? Let's see. I'll make sure there's a link on the okay. on the Chainstone website. Okay, great. Yeah. And I know, I it's, think- if, if you search for it, if you search for it under the- um, you know, securities transfer to Chainstone. It's in. It's embedded in most of the articles about that, and it's on my Twitter too. Okay, awesome. And it's also in my Forbes article. 
So great. Yeah. And when do you think we're going to start seeing more of this, more um, digital securities being transferred? Well, there's a lot of companies working on this. There's a lot of issuers and there's a lot of sort of service providers and there's a lot of exchanges and they're moving at a, a fast pace from a lot of different angles and there's a lot of players in it and and some of them are going to fail but some of them are going to do some stuff and some of them are going to issue some securities and they're going to be digital and it's going to be very very interesting my prediction is that there's going to be quite a few of these in 2019 and it will be a varying quality it'll be quite a bit different from the crazy ICO wave. I don't think we'll have those sort of crazy speculative numbers. And that's that's good in some ways. But we will have a continued sort of Wild West environment with a lot of, you know, low quality offerings and, and different kinds of, um, you, you, you know, companies who are you know, having bad term, you know, terms, that kind of thing, just because something is a security, in other words, doesn't mean it's going to be good. And, uh, you know, this kind of concept that regulation is going to solve everything, or, uh, you know, this industry just needs regulation, and then everything will be rosy. That's not accurate, in my opinion. I think there's still going to be a lot of issues, there's going to be a lot of low quality offerings and things like that. But uh, I think there's going to be a lot of good offerings. And the great thing when you get into securities, particularly equities, those can be measured and judged based on longstanding methods of securities analysis. People have been, there's been books about securities analysis since five decades before the internet existed. So it's a known sort of field. And you have things like earnings and the name of the company and goodwill and uh, projections and team and these kind of things, which are pretty quantifiable, particularly good old-fashioned earnings. You know, make some money. Maybe you lose on your net. Maybe you have some assets. Maybe you don't. Those kind of numbers don't really lie. And that's going to be really interesting because that will help separate the high-quality projects from the low-quality projects. And in all of the noise, if you're a company out there just pounding away and getting revenue and building your balance sheet, uh, and meanwhile, there's someone else who does kind of a 2017 style fundraise and has a bunch of money and bells and whistles, but bad terms on it, and they dwindle that cash away. Eventually, the market's going to reflect that. And I think it's going to happen pretty quickly. And we'll probably have a lot more high quality analysis, and things like that, looking at the quality and merits of these various securities tokens and digital securities that trade around. So I think there's going to be quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. And so are do you mean there's going to be more, are we going to start seeing more security token offerings versus ICOs? Do you think ICOs are dead? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? ICOs really, in most cases, were securities offerings. Some of them were not securities offerings done in compliance with the laws of the country that they were in. But in most cases, those sort of were securities offerings. And I think that you will see basically the same kind of thing. It's just a matter of sort of doing the paperwork and having having the terms reflect whether it's a security. In the United States, that means either offering it under one of the many exemptions that the SEC has outlined about how you're exempt from offering or registering as an offering and being a real publicly traded company, which is, of course, very expensive, very complex, takes a lot of time. You've got to have years of audited financial statements and, uh, you know, you've you're, you're under a very heavy microscope. But, um, you know, there are ways certainly um, in the U.S. to issue securities legally. And I think that um, that, that that's what we're going to see. Uh, that the sort of what we called ICOs, sort of these, these offerings that were done uh, and claimed not to be securities, that can still continue. You can still continue to have uh, something called a utility token. But I, I would be pretty cautious of that because uh, you know the SEC has made it clear that a lot of these things were securities and uh, you, you know you got to make a, a pretty solid case about why it's not, especially if you're doing something like raising money. My, you know, my sort of, you know, I'm not an attorney, but my rule of thumb is if you're raising money and you're out there asking for money, you probably better assume that it's a security. Uh, you know, if, if you're offering money, you know, asking for money in exchange for a digital item, you better ex- assume it's a security in the United States, at least, unless you sort of have otherwise, uh, you know, an opinion from a lawyer that says that it's a utility or a currency or something 
not a security. Uh, but I think that we'll see a lot of them going ahead and and either uh, uh, you know registering or or offering under one of the exemptions because that's really the only way that you can you can do it these days if you're if you're doing the kind of activities that most of these ICOs were doing. Right. I mean, and I I think and I I mean I guess since the year has already started. Uh, there's obviously much less hype around ICOs and more, you know, amongst security tokens and security token offerings. So I'm really excited for the future of future of securities also. Yeah. I really cautious people to be careful of the hype. The good news about it is, like I said, because they are securities, we can use good old-fashioned security analysis. That's one of the main things Atlantic Financial is doing, is using securities analysis to look at these kind of things and advise investors. But So investors can look at, at, at these kind of assets, and um, they can use pretty solid sort of metrics to say, is this junk or is it good? Is it risky? Is it not? Uh, right now, pretty much every ICO is extraordinarily risky and most of them have very bad terms. It doesn't need to be the case with uh, with with STOs or, or, or digital uh, securities. Some of them could be very low risk, actually. Something like a stable coin um, is depending on how it's Held because it's all about the custody, but could be fairly low risk. You could, there's no reason you couldn't have a securities token right now that it, that buys, uh, you, you, you know, very stable assets like real estate or even even a diversified portfolio of real estate, gold, uh, the euro, the dollar, you know, assets that somebody may consider uh, stable. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to have this crazy volatility that we've seen with the, with the sort of conventional crypto markets. Uh, and 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 if you have have digital securities that are based on real companies with real revenue and earnings and balance sheets, they shouldn't have the crazy, you know, sort of you know thirty thirty percent intraday fluctuations that we've seen with with uh, cryptocurrencies because again, you know, they're it's based more on on terms that are that are real. But the thing that I would cautious people is. Don't assume that just because it's security means that it's that it's good or these are going to be higher quality than the ICOs. They may not be. Uh, you know, Bernie Madoff's offerings were a security, and uh, you you can be a security and still be a fraud. Uh, you could even be a security and comply with all the laws and dot all the I's uh, and cross all the T's and not have any legal problems at all and still go down to zero. Uh, legal compliance well-meaning securities who follow the law go out of business all the time. Uh, and it doesn't mean they broke the law. It just means they failed. So certainly being a security doesn't give you any protection at all. It doesn't give you any uh, ability to say, you know, yes, I'm not going to lose this money or, you know, this is somehow less risky than the thing that wasn't a security. Uh, it, you know, that, so, so, so investors should be cautious of that. But, you know, it'll probably be like it was last time, only a little bit less. There'll probably be a lot of hype. And I predict that there'll be a lot of things that people sort of overvalue just because they are blockchainized or tokenized. Mm -hmm. But eventually markets end up being right and those things even themselves out. Right. And in your opinion, what makes a security token offering, you know, legitimate or or bound for success? Legitimacy is an interesting question. I I, I think my own definition of legitimacy would would say honest terms that uh, are followed through with and make sense when and have a lot of transparency. Since I'm in the United States, I have to broaden that sort of by default and say, well, if it's a security in the United States, it's got to comply with the laws. And I'm very much a free market, voluntarist, uh, classic liberal kind of, uh, you know, low or no regulation person. Uh, however, in the United States, the regulations exist. They're here. Um, you could be an activist against them, just like you could be an activist against uh, the drug regulations. And you could, but you, but you can't really just go into a state where it's illegal and open up a drug store on the street, and uh, that would be, get shut down and probably end up getting people in trouble. So, at least in the United States, the the laws aren't optional at all. They have to be complied with, particularly somebody like me who's already been governed by the by the by the laws for a long time. So. Um, you know, there's legitimacy of the terms, and then there's there's sort of is it in compliance? I think the United States is. I mean, it's easy for us because we're we're here, but it's also kind of a uh, a standard uh, for better or for worse. It's a standard that the whole world kind of looks at. If you're in compliance in the U.S., it's probably going to be easier 
easier to get into compliance in some other places else, elsewhere in the world. And then the second part of your question, which is what makes them succeed? Well, that's a really great one because that comes back to what we need a lot more of in this space and just in general, which is less hype and more good old-fashioned business, securities, go make money, sell products, earn revenue, the good kind of basic stuff. There are ICO-funded projects out there which don't have any real semblance of a real business. They don't have accountability. They don't have a board. They don't have anybody to answer to for their lavish spending. They don't even really have a plan on how to make the thing make money, and money isn't even really going to benefit the uh, people who bought anyway because they're not shareholders. Um, so it's so it's really disjointed systems. But in the future, the the successful offerings will be those that have fair terms. And I really like good old fashioned equity. I'd like to, you know, there's a lot of other types of securities. You can be bonds and you know all kinds of crazy derivatives and everything else that are securities. But good old fashioned equity is very easy to understand. It's a very good model. It's created some pretty darn good investments like you know, Facebook, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and so on. It's built a lot of fortunes, like pretty much 90% of the rich list. And uh, it makes sense. So I like equities. And I think that, uh, you know, that'll bring us back to it won't really matter whether it's a token or not, as long as they pick a good solid chain and have it work and have some of the security procedures in place to make sure that the token part of it doesn't break. Everything else uh, that matters will just depend on whether it's a good business or not. Are they out there earning money, selling products, uh, you know, getting some, some net revenue, gross revenue, whatever the type of business it is. And that's going to be really exciting, especially if you have 10,000 publicly traded companies or 50,000 publicly traded companies. And there's no reason we can't do that right now. The reason that we don't have it in the old system is because it's too hard. And this issue with centralized trusted parties being needed to manage the, the ledgers. If we get rid of that, which blockchains can help do, then it's a whole new world that we can trade things like we couldn't trade before. So, so there's no reason we couldn't have, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 publicly traded companies. Right. And you also mentioned, um, you know, it's very dependent on a good solid chain. And I know that for the transfer that you guys just did with Medici Ventures used Ravencoin, that blockchain, correct? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, the chain, the chain is really important. Um, I view it, I think it's going to be kind of like jurisdiction. You can have a company, and let's suppose you had the same company. It's Jane's tech company, and Jane makes AI, and she does 10 million in revenue, and her company is worth 50 million. Okay. Now, that company in Delaware is worth more than that company in Lagos, Nigeria. And it's worth a little different than it would be if it's in. Uh, Zug, Switzerland, or if it's in uh, Jamaica, or if it's in Alabama. Jurisdiction matters a little bit, particularly when you compare a very good jurisdiction like Delaware with a, you know, unfortunately, typically bad jurisdiction like Nigeria, which has a lot of issues with fraud and, you know, even opening bank accounts is almost impossible, these kind of things. So it it would affect the value of an enterprise quite a bit. Uh, Even if Jane is doing exactly, you know, Jane is still selling her product in either either jurisdiction, but she's going to be worth significantly less if she's in Nigeria. So um, that's the way I view chains. I think chains are going to be kind of like jurisdiction. Jane can issue a securities token, and she may be doing the same revenue if she issues it on what today, for example, is a very strong chain like Bitcoin, then that's going to be kind of like Delaware. If she issues it on a weird, odd uh, chain that's easily attacked, people may say, well, you know, okay, this isn't worth nothing. We like Jane. We understand the business has value. The underlying enterprise has value. However, we're going we're gonna to factor that in. And, depending, and then they'll get into the things like the structures, like, okay, what if the chain breaks? What happens? How do you fix it? Do you revoke those shares and issue new ones? If so, can that hurt me? These are the kind of issues that are going to be need to worked out between the issuer and the investors. But um, I think that a lot of people overlook that. Everybody has kind of by default jumped on Ethereum. And I like Ethereum. I was uh, very active in Ethereum since before day one. And um, it's it's becoming kind of a standard, and that's good in some ways. But it does have some issues with some scalability and some centralization. I I wasn't a fan of how uh, when the DAO project was hacked in the earlier days, Ethereum sort of rolled that back because – 
that existence of a central power that can do that means that it could be done again, which kind of means somebody could order them to do it, which means you get into lists and controls and OFAC orders and these kind of things, which tend to um, erode the seamless flow of how crypto has an advantage. If you have to go through a checkpoint, in other words, then all that cool stuff that I just mentioned about moving securities all around the world sort of falls apart and you end up clogged up with some sort of regulator checkpoint that you need to go in to say, hey, is this okay? Is it not okay? I'd rather, those laws are going to exist either way. I don't want to see crypto, uh, I don't think it's an effective goal right now for crypto to try and um, totally ignore those laws, but I think they can be, be complied with on the, you know, on the on the on the second layer, um, so that you have the you know the basic way that crypto works works just like Bitcoin, and then on the second layer, you know, things like brokers, regulated entities like we are, registered investment advisors, we have all kinds of AML KYC requirements, and that's no problem. We're able to to do that. I just don't want to see it go to a you know sort of a coin level. So so I think that there, there's going to be a lot of interesting things on on how the compliance environment unfolds around this this whole thing. And a lot of these are still question marks right now. Right. Well, I'm going to change the topic a little bit because I'm curious about this. Um, I read that you hosted the Satoshi Roundtable private retreat, which was a gathering of 75 of the top leaders in blockchain technology. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Who was there? What was discussed, et cetera? It's a pretty cool event. We've done it. We're in the fifth year now. And it's historically been attended by it's always tricky. I'm always cautious about my words on this. I don't like to use words like leaders. In fact, right on our logo, it says no leaders because it's sort of against the whole point of the of the crypto thing. And I try and sort of de-emphasize the, it's not so much about being invitation only. It's more about just, it's limited in space. And it's grown from the 75, the first year to, you know, 150 or so now. And it's, it be, because it's limited in in space, you know, you just kind of not everybody can go. So so the negative of that is that it does does have kind of an exclusivity thing that is, I think, sort of against the crypto ethos. But we try and work hard to to adjust that. We 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 do give some scholarships and we try and have a a very broad um, cross section of people that go there. And it's historically been attended, you know, very well. We've had you know Vitalik and Brian Armstrong and uh, you know Adam Back and a lot of core developers. Developers and Elizabeth Stark, and um, you know the list goes on and on. You know C CEOs of major companies like you know Abra and Shapeshift, Coinbase and Bitfury, and and these kind of groups, and a lot of developers and a lot of academics and influencers and these kind of people. Uh, you know this year we'll have people from the Bitcoin Foundation and Coin Center and uh, you know bigger companies like Fidelity and J.P. Morgan. But we keep it small. It's kind of an introverts con conference. We haven't typically had um, sponsors, which is a little bit different. Um, you know, so it's, so it's, it's sort of, it's sort of a industry retreat gathering, get together kind of, um, every year it's, it's sort of the, the, the crowd really designs it and runs it. There's no set agenda. They, they decide what they want to talk about. And I'm very curious what it is this year. I think it'll be a lot of these topics that you're talking about. These are the kind of things that I, at least from what I see on the industry, as I'm talking to people as they're registering now, uh, what they're, they're going to be talking about. A lot of these regulatory issues, where we are, how you're building, these kind of things. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like an amazing event. I would love to attend one day if I ever make it to that, you know, level of leader, but, um, or, or if you want to say leader or not leader, whatever, but it sounds amazing. Do you guys host it on like, um, a private Island of some sort or. Well, yeah, no, it's a nice resort. You know, it's, uh, that's actually, it's funny. That's, that's something that was, um, we did it at club med, which is kind of a moderate resort. Uh, the first three years, but by popular demand, a lot of people wanted it a little bit nicer place. Um, but the problem with that is that it's a little bit, you know, we don't, we don't really make money on the event. The, the, but, but the higher uh, hotel prices can um, be, uh, you know, it makes it a little bit harder for some of the nonprofits and things like that to come. But, you know, that's what the guests kind of like. So, so yeah, we tend to do it. You know, we're going to mix it up a little bit. In 2019, we're going to do some smaller. We haven't had room at the big round table to fit everybody. So we're going to do some smaller sort of mini discussion groups that are in kind of the round table style as sort of these mini side tables. We're going to do those up in New Hampshire. There's a couple really cool venues around. There's a, a, a farm that we used at an, at an event. There's the, um, you know, the, the town that 
our office is in is in uh, Portsmouth, which is a really cool little New England town. And uh, so we're going to do like small get togethers to talk about very specific topics like building on the lightning network or how you have uh, bearer assets uh, carry identity with them or not carry identity with them. These kind of things will be very topic specific type of things that we'll do uh, for these mini, mini gatherings because, you know, this industry doesn't have any central authorities or control or anything. There's no kind of home office. So that's one reason that I think events, uh, for better or worse, you know, events can be very exhausting. But I think it's one reason that events have been such an important part of this industry. It's because, you know, how else are you going to meet anybody or talk to anybody or find out what's going on? And, and uh, uh, it, you know, and I've been to a lot of events and we've hosted a lot of events. So we've tried to take the best of what we learned from it, make something that's that's useful. It's a lot of work and, and you don't really make it, at least in our case, we don't make any money on them pretty much. But uh, but it is something that's fun that we learn a lot from. Right. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, I've been to a lot of events also, and you've really got to be choosy with them because now there are so many blockchain, Bitcoin, crypto events out there. And I mean, a lot of them are just kind of like, in my opinion, a waste of time, but there are some that are really, really good. And in my opinion, the smaller ones, like the round table type sessions are usually the most worthwhile. So it sounds like um, the yeah. Satoshi Roundtable is a really great event. Yeah, I think so. And 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 the the type of people that come, you know, the top CEOs, they're very busy. The top developers, you know, they want uh, the developers want really high signal to noise. They want to go and hang around with the other geniuses and talk about really advanced stuff. The last thing they want is get an ICO right. CEOs. They want to go there and do deals and meet with people that they can help further their business goals with, and. You know, others have different motivations, but we try and create an environment that fosters all those things so that people go and, and we don't make it about, you know, how can we sell, you know, there's no booths or anything right. like that. You know, how can we sell booths or something? Um, and I don't mind those events, some of the real commercial events. I mean, there's a place for those as well, too. Uh, and there's a place for kind of, you know, one of the events I really like is Baltic Honey Badger. They're, they're kind of, um, I guess you'd call it cypherpunk academic is how I'd describe it, kind of uh, very high quality presentations and not 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 an academic conference, but kind of that style and sort of very cypherpunk in its theme. And I, I really like that. I and that was one of the few speaking engagements I accepted this last year. But and I and it actually encouraged me to do a better job on my presentation because I said, well, you know, if I'm going to be on the stage with Elizabeth Stark and Adam Back and all these people talking about brilliant technological advances, and I'm not a super technical person, I better at least have some kind of content that's useful. So I, every, every event has its strengths and weaknesses. And one of the things we try and do, and I, you know, I'd recommend to anybody if they're doing meetups and that kind of thing is create a lot of time that people can, can just uh, do their own thing. Um, particularly if you have a group like ours, where it's a very pre-screened group of, of people with a lot of knowledge and a lot of things to offer. The, the, the things that I've re realized over the five years of doing the round table is the less I do, the, the better. It's such a smart group of overachieving, wonderful people. Uh, you know, I may be good or bad, I don't know, but they don't really need me. They don't need Bruce Fenton to go and tell them, hey, here's this idea. Hey, come on, fellas, let's gather in this room. And I, you know, that's your natural inclination as a conference organizer, you know, year one, I was kind of like, hey, come over here and do this. And I got you this entertainment and this food. And eventually I learned that just let them do their thing and foster an environment that, you know, if they if they don't feel like being in the air conditioning room and they want to be out by the beach and they're all talking, well, then that's where they should be and let them do that and go have the have the the, the catering place bring a couple waters over for them. And so uh, so that's what we're trying to do. And we do that up in New Hampshire a little bit. So, um, you know, I think that it's important in this industry, these these kind of discussions and, you know, a lot of the things that go on with the signal groups and the telegram groups, you know, again, because there's no central control or central office, uh, we sort of have to have this distributed hive to network and communicate and talk to each other and find out what's going on in the world so that we can try and survive in this crazy industry. Right. Agreed. Well, I could continue picking your mind all day, but we're running low on time. So I just wanted to ask if there's anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up before we um, come to an end. I think one thing that that I've been thinking a lot, it's one of the things that the company is working on, but you know, one of the things that I've thought is important um, because I had this background as a financial advisor and then I got into this, a lot of the things that I thought of, sort of thought 
you know, as, as second nature are things that probably aren't for people that weren't financial advisors or haven't had a financial plan. And I think that there's a lot of kind of basic financial planning 101 type of stuff that needs to be done in the industry. And when I have time, I want to write more medium articles and things like that about this this topic. But there's a lot of people, for example, who haven't done a basic asset allocation. You know, there's a lot of crypto people where they have 90% of their net worth in crypto. And there's a lot of people outside of crypto have 0% in crypto. And neither is probably right for most growth-oriented people. You want to have a, a sensible plan that says, you know, the, the the trading kind of mentality, I guess, is one thing that I'm getting at. It's, it should be more about long-term planning, where these things will go, what assets will do, what securities will be worth something, what digital currencies like Bitcoin will be worth something, what, what your long-term thesis is, and less about the kind of day-to-day trading and the when Lambo now and when can you get a 10x and these sort of things. And having an overall long-term uh, investment allocation, a philosophy, and a financial plan. And I think that a lot of that, I mean, I sort of forgot a lot about that, even though I had been a financial advisor for 20 years. This space moves so fast and goes so crazy that, uh, you know, I, I forgot a lot of those lessons over the last six years. And and um, I think there's a place for them. So a lot of the, the kind of basic things like saying, you know, where is all your money? What is your plan? What is your pie chart? What is your allocation? And I really recommend that. I urge crypto people and non-crypto people to do that. Just have the, have a kind of plan like that that takes these things into account. Because uh, whether we're right or wrong about securities tokens, it is going to continue to get more complex. There's a lot of tax issues. There's a lot of other uh, issues in in this thing that that affect people's money. And that's the name of the game. That's why a lot of people are doing this, is to try and build a better future for themselves or their families. So they should really take into account the bigger picture, not just these sort of, you know, charts and graphs and daily trading moves kind of thing. Have a big picture financial plan, diversify, be selective, be patient with it. Right. And I think that's such, I mean, a valuable and important point that you're making because um, here in the Bay Area, and I'm sure, you know, elsewhere, um, I know some people that were very fully invested in crypto. And now with the bear market, um, people are pretty depressed. So it definitely helps to have a plan. Yeah, absolutely. As they say, if you if you don't know where you're going, you just might get there. You know, you need a plan. And I would urge people now. I mean, if you if the if the listeners who are in crypto, uh, particularly if they're significantly in crypto, which is a lot of your listeners, are probably really feeling hit hard right now. It's a it's a hard market for a lot of people, particularly people who are overweighted in ICOs or something. There's people that have kind of unbelievable gains and now catastrophic losses, or if they got in at the wrong timing, just all catastrophic losses. And uh, that's a better time than any. It's as good a time as any, I should say, to reevaluate, do a basic plan, sit down and get a piece of paper, as painful as it may be, and say, what are your assets? What is your cash? US dollar, euro, Bitcoin? Current, what are your currencies? What are your crypto holdings? Yeah, people should look. People should look at whether they are overweighted or underweighted in crypto, and look at their overall plan. Do they have the funds that they need in the future for retirement, college planning, major expenses like weddings or children's weddings or these kind of things? And that's kind of basic, boring, vanilla financial planner stuff. But just like Warren Buffett's stock picking advice, it has a lot of wisdom behind it. And there's a reason that people have done these kind of things for many, many years, and it does make sense. And there's a lot of people who might have thought they were all set, and now they're not. And there's a lot of radical ups and downs. And no matter what your case is, whether you have $10 or $10 million, and that $10 million used to be $100 million, and you're feeling whipsawed or whatever the case is, it's never the wrong time to make a plan. And starting with a plan by looking at where you are now and where you want to be and what expenses you'll have and adjusting to that. Pretty much anybody in crypto has to adjust their goals and dreams and plans and things like that based on the market corrections, assuming that they were exposed to crypto, they're probably down quite a bit. So so living beneath your means, having a plan on where you're going to get income, all of these kind of things, adjusting it for these wild rides and planning for the future. Uh, those are all, you know, really basic and like I said, even kind of boring things to do, but they're they're really key and they make a big difference, particularly over time. People who are younger, every year that you have, when you're looking at things like long-term retirement planning, a couple percent and a couple 
$1,000 at age 26 could end up meaning a really big difference uh, at age 67. Uh, there's a lot of charts and graphs that show, you know, the power of how these things compound over time and this kind of stuff. And that's the kind of thing that, that people should be looking at uh, in crypto. Uh, if you're, if you're, if you have, it's, it's what you separate your emotion and your interest and your intellectual curiosity and especially your tribalism from your portfolio management. So um, people have their opinions about crypto and their favorite ideas and all of that. But I would recommend that you separate that from your portfolio management. Have For your portfolio, you have a real strategy that says, okay, what do I have? Where do I want to be? What are the likelihoods that, you know, and again, with crypto, you can't depend on it doing anything. You could lose what you have in crypto. Uh, you need an overall plan that probably has other assets and that kind of thing. But it, but but a lot of people are in this for sort of the money and they're trying to build something uh for those people particularly, you really, really got to have a plan that considers this whole thing. Right. Well, those are definitely words of wisdom. So I'm sure everyone out there appreciates that advice. Yeah, Great. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. You are so insightful and knowledgeable. So I'm really grateful that you joined today for the show. Thank you. Well, you're one of the best out there. And so it's always a real pleasure. And uh, uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel Wolfson, and thank you, Bruce Fenton. And I was inspired by your Bruce Lee quote there, and it reminded me of a Confucius saying. Okay. And I, I have to put on the obligatory you know, Asian accent in order to say it properly. So, yes, I am culturally appropriating right now. Uh, here it is. Uh, he who go to bed with itchy butt wake up with stinky finger. Oh, very true. He who smoke marijuana high on pot. <laughs> Uh, uh, we're glad that you guys are here. Thanks for hanging around with us and uh, and playing. You know, we really seek to bring you a uh, a lot of valuable content, but you can't take life too seriously. We want to follow this whole blockchain space with a sense of humor because, personally, I believe that humor keeps you younger. It does for me. Well, that's actually how Bruce Lee kind of talked. Is I like to impersonate voices. Like if I hear, I've always done like sort of. What was that one comedian back in the day who did all those voices? He was always on uh, the late Rich Little. Night. Yeah, Rich Little. I was like, I always Rich, loved Rich that Little. dude. Like, like I was just amazed at like how many accents and impersonations he could do, just spot on. I love that. It's well, stuff. you know, he's actually he's still alive and like he was um he's 80 years old and i saw recently on a vegas sign that he was still performing no way from time to time yeah so he's old school you know tv if you've never seen a rich little um you know impression show just go to youtube and and uh, search for rich little and you'll see this guy nailed absolutely nailed so many impressions and uh, he's he's just really good at it you don't see too many impressionists these days you don't you know it's like like he blew me away as much as like that dude from uh police academy movies michael uh winslow who made all those sound effects that like that dude and his sound effects were like um like just blow your mind he's telling a whole story and he's like making up the sounds the whole sounds tell the story he's crazy unreal lots of talent out there well, the sounds of blockchain tell the story as well. If you guys have not yet subscribed to the Bad Crypto Podcast, now's your chance. Don't miss your opportunity. And if you haven't reviewed the show, what are you waiting for? Come on, go give us a review wherever it is that you listen. We appreciate it. And when you do, you prove to us above everything else that right now you've got what it takes to stay bad. Who's bad? The Bad Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto, LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of Bitcoin's and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor.